he looks like Billy Joe Armstrong from uh, Green Day, and a lot like uh, one of the sons on uh, Milf Manor. If anybody else is watching that, oh my goodness, yeah, this is don't watch it. It's absolutely trash, trash. But one of the sons, it's like, oh, he watched, he modeled his aesthetic after loosely after this kid, male victim and Jennifer's bond. And we, it is not only Wednesday night, it is over in these parts of Hamilton, Ontario, it is what we call in the old-fashioned days a regular old snows day. <laughs> it is quite snowy out. Uh, it's only, it's not even 6 p.m., and we have done three shovelings so far, and the snow is still coming down. So we hope, wherever you are listening to this, you are dry and warm. Yeah, and I thought... We want to get on topic for the people who are here for our cannibal film discussions pretty quickly, but I thought, Zach, it is it is Wednesday night, and it is wrestling night, and I thought you might want to just say something about, um, I'll let you take it from there. Yeah, the passing of Jay Briscoe, which as wrestling fans around here, we have been mourning for the past week. I'm really excited to hear that uh, Warner Media is going to allow Mark Briscoe to be on tonight's AEW show. I think it's going to be a really lovely tribute. Hope you're, hope you've already watched it by the time you uh, tune in, and just our thoughts and prayers to uh, Jay Briscoe's family, his children, his brother, his many, many friends, admirers, and fans. Praying for him. Yeah, I think that's that's a nice um a nice little yeah tribute a little let's, summation tribute yeah let's um let's let's introduce ourselves for our regular listeners we are cancon two canadians having cannibal conversations they're kind of for conversations about cannibal films um this week we are going to be discussing uh the film jennifer's body so uh, cody diablo cody's 2009? I should have looked this up before It is 2009 we... because I did a lot of legwork <laughs> afterwards because I had cultural amnesia about this movie where like I knew there was a film called Jennifer's Body and I knew that in the last 10 years it's kind of uh, snowballed into both critical and just popular acclaim but went sort of unnoticed at the time. So I'm getting caught up starting with actually watching the film which we did in preparation for tonight's podcast. Yeah. Hold on. Are you going to come up? We have a cold dog who is maybe looking to join the podcast. Okay, we just had to pause recording because our beagle, who uh, knows all of the routines that pertain to her, was very uh, insistent on reminding us that she's eaten her dinner, so she gets her after-dinner dental treat, which she really loves. Let's get back to business. So, Zach, you had some cultural amnesia about the film. Also, since you referred to me by my first name, we should introduce ourselves, which we didn't do because we, we were do. so excited. <laughs> I'm Zachary. And I'm Jocelyn. And yeah, we're going to talk about this film that really did happen. It was really filmed, released, circulated in 2009. It did not do well in box offices in at the time and has since gained kind of a cult following. Um, it's... Doesn't it take it's it's the least serious of the films that we 
are discussing in this season, but also is um, ha has some really good commentary about what it's like to be a teenage girl and go through puberty and live under patriarchy in a way that's very, I think, disarming. Yeah, it's um, what was like in a. I guess we'll kind of jump around here in terms of what we want to talk about with the film, but. I did, in my research, uh, see an interview with Diablo Cody where she mentioned that she was looking for, I believe I'm paraphrasing, I don't have it in front of me, but something along the lines of one of the objectives was to make a horror movie where the women have a lot more to say and more interesting things to say, funnier things to say, just like, not just as like a, a protagonist, but as like, assuming a lot of the roles that are typically reserved for men in uh specifically horror films but films of all kind and you, you get that the two leads amanda seyfried and uh megan fox of course they have a lot to do in this movie there's a lot of comedy a lot of physical acting some drama some sex, sex. cannibalism <laughs> the two constants in this podcast will likely obviously be cannibalism and i think all of our films except oh no alive is a pretty asexual film but we won't get back into that with the weird baby shoes yeah yeah but the rest of the movies have a lot of sex in them so far or implied sex sexiness sexuality sexuality sexualization yeah i was thinking about how I, we should do a, a 30 second recap of the plot of the film so i've left it to you for the first two i did it for the last one so i guess i will do it for this one um, we have these two characters, Jennifer and Needy, and they are best buds, even though Needy is played by Megan Fox. I mean, they're both beautiful, beautiful actors, so, but they play up that, uh, it's played up that Jennifer is popular, and she's a cheerleader, and she is characteristically both sexy and sexual in the way that teenage girls, um were framed as sexual beings, that like the camera looks at her as a sexualized kind of figure. Um, and then we have Needy, who is... Uh, wears glasses. That's how you know she's not <laughs> Megan Fox, because she's got her glasses on. And the, and, and the film is funny about it's it. It's playing with the trope of, like, the... What was it? Never Been Kissed, where Drew Barrymore... Glasses and ponytail. Glasses and ponytail. And so, <laughs> or my favorite is, uh, not to get off, but... um. Is it? I always get them confused. Whether it was Kira Knightley in the Mummy, or um, I think it was Kira Knightley, where she's like the homely librarian for the first five minutes, and then Brendan Fraser like takes her glasses off and lets her hair out, and suddenly she's like the like the sexy Indiana Jones. That's I'm so bad with names, so I don't. Rem I'm like, oh, I can't help you, but that's really yeah. Um, that's really funny. Um, I like Needy's glasses. I was watching it like I know your glasses are supposed to, in the year of our Lord, 2023, they would be kind of fashionable and cute. But in 2009, they are uh, very nerdy. They're kind of small and they're Wireframe, yeah. Yeah, and she doesn't wear a lot of makeup and she dresses in a like... I think next to Jennifer, she's supposed to look frumpy, but she actually dresses in just, like, a really, like, a regular, it gets really interesting to see her, um, dressed in a very regular fashion, I guess. Um, they are besties, even though everything about them would say that socially they shouldn't get along together. 
Um, they go to see an indie band called Low Shoulder. Um, <laughs> the members of the band Low Shoulder uh, want their, they're not making it in the age in the world of this explosion of indie bands with good haircuts, I think is how they describe themselves. And we'll put Indian quotation marks because I think the film is kind of playing with that as well. That sure. these guys are about as indie as, uh, as you two were once considered indie, sort of. Absolutely. So they are a big scare quotes indie band. They're trying to make it, and they decide that they're never gonna. What late? What late night show is it? They wanna. They wanna get on. Uh, I, did they say Letterman, who always had kind of the hipper of the quasi indie bands? And so they haven't made it onto Letterman yet, and they decide they're going to make a deal with the devil to access fame, and they find this arcane occult ritual. They come to this small town. Um, they decide that they are going to find a virgin and sacrifice her to Satan in exchange for their own fame. Um, we'll talk about the ideas of virginity and how they are they are played with. They decide they pick up Jennifer. They decide she must be a virgin based on some conversations that happen. They sacrifice her. They skyrocket to fame, and Jennifer is not a virgin, as she says. I'm not even a backdoor virgin, and so the sacrifice goes awry, and she ends up being one of the, she ends up being uh, possessed by a demon. One of the questions for me that I've been kind of thinking about since we watched it is how much of the character after the sacrifice, like, is there anything of actually Jennifer left or is it all the demon? Like the demon is an allegory for being a teenage girl in patriarchy going through puberty. Um, but it also does some really funny things, does some really horrible things, including in order to, uh, it's kind of the cycle, right? Where the demon Jennifer has to engage in cannibalism which is like I'm like because I was like oh no is it not cannibalism if it's not if she's a demon and not a person she's or like consuming rather than eating rather than yeah so we're not gonna we're not gonna think to that part where like it's cannibalism because that's the premise of our podcast um but she has to eat people she chooses to eat boys to retain her um her glowing complexion and her beautiful silky hair and her uh, uncharacteristic Megan Fox good looks, but then it's her good looks and her sex appeal that help her kind of trap and lure teenage boys to do the eating and to, to cannibalize them. So she is wrapped up in this particular cycle um, and ends up getting, spoiler, if you haven't seen the film, it has been more than 10 years. It's been almost 15 years I think that's on you um, hashtag no such thing as spoilers hashtag anyway. no such thing as spoilers anyway that's yeah that's my belief um because if a text was just about the plot then why even bother talking about them we could just have a list of events that happen is the way that I talk about it with my students anyway uh <laughs> needy ends up murdering uh Jennifer or destroying the demon that is Jennifer um, partially because she realizes that Jennifer is weird and insecure and somewhat jealous of her and any boys who have any attraction to Needy, this is kind of the ironic twist, are the ones that Jennifer goes after because of her own Jennifer the demon, Jennifer the teenage girl, because they're kind of both, I think it's clearly supposed to be both at the same time, um, uh, goes after because of her, her insecurities. Yeah, and it's funny because like, 
one of the many reasons the film bombed uh, back in 2009 was sort of a backlash from like the bro intellectual crowd. And it's funny because like when you summarize the plot like that, you could totally insert Christian Bale instead of Megan Fox and like make this about two young men. And I think a lot of the same dudes who hated it would be coming up with all these like theories. Like it's all a dream. Like needy actually kills, uh, Jennifer because like Jennifer's just a bad person and ruining her life through jealousy. All of the eating is like imagined, like it's all in, in needy's head. Like it invites that kind of, um, kind of like explaining away the supernatural elements. But the film is, is much more playful than that. Um, and between the, the comedic elements of it, I think, and the kind of Jocelyn brought up a really good point that it's never quite clear how much of Jennifer, I mean, the title, even Jennifer's body, like, is it just her body by the majority of the action of the film with the demon just in complete control? Is Jennifer kind of blinking in and out as the demon, like, makes itself more or less present given the circumstances? Um, and I also found it interesting that so many of the reviews focused on the fact that Throughout the film, Jennifer vomits up kind of this sludgy black fluid, which when you watch it now is kind of like the least remarkable thing about the movie, but evidently it grossed people out in 2009. We, were, we did not have an abundance of black vomit in, uh, in film back then, apparently. Yeah, so I'm, I'm going to pick up on a couple of, of threads there. I think that, that I was thinking about how it kind of bears some narrative similarities to even a film like Scream, um, if we were watching Scream and it's like a gender reverse, I mean, it's very different from Scream, which takes itself seriously as a horror film, um, and isn't being funny, although it spawns like scary movie and that whole franchise, which is just like playing with tropes and making fun of them. Um, but it's, it's kind of similar in that you have like these two people who are like quite... Like, the reason Needy has to kill Jennifer is she feels too complicit. They have um, a very strong bond. Um, and, and Needy doesn't, like, take, participate willingly. I guess it's not, like, Scream and not, like, Needy doesn't willingly participate. She's horrified by the, the cannibalism that's happening, which she um, is kind of magically... One of my favorite... It's so... Oh my, I can't complete a thought because there's so many things That's happening. my last thing was around um, a lot of... Uh, Jumping around. It's so a lot of jumping around. Yeah. Clinging to each other's stray, stray strands. It feels like a buddy horror film. The relationship between Jennifer and Needy is played with in inter interesting ways that resonates um, for me as, as being similar to some other films. Um, Jennifer and Needy have kind of a deep psychic connection that gets explored later in the text that seems to be part of just like the root of their friendship. So even the film plays with, um, it's, it's uh, narrated by Needy who is describing her relationship with Jennifer at the beginning of the film as like sandbox love never dies. There is very much a queer line and a queer implication that, um, gets explored in really interesting ways, including, I think it gets explored as, as an impossible love, like quite explicitly, um, that they, that, that, they're sort of not allowed in under patriarchy as teenage girls to actually love each other. That has to be something they do in secret during sleepovers and things like that. Um, but the psychic connection is explored through their friendship 
like charm necklaces early in the beginning. Needy. Uh, there's tons of, uh, some of the lines hold up and are really funny. Some of the lines kind of feel cheesy in 2023, but I think the film leans into the cheesiness. Um, and she says something about the sandbox, love never dies. That's why we're Biffs. Biffs is like the BFF necklace. Um, <laughs> which is really funny. And then, yeah, when in the sacrifice itself, right, the idea is that they are sacrificing Jennifer's body. So, like, not Jennifer as a person, but Jennifer's body. And that really, um, yeah, your questions about, like, how much is this a body being piloted around by a demon? How much is that demon puberty? And how much is the film thinking about, like, teenage girls who are trying to go through puberty and survive and figure out all of this weird social stuff and all of this like sexual stuff that's swimming around them both in your own like going through puberty and having new desires for yourself but also being like viewed by the world as like a newly sexual being um with what comes with that is maybe some reduced respect for your humanity right so maybe getting treated like a body um by the world in this new and horrifying way yeah there's a really uh, again most of the the uh sort of queer parallel story throughout is implied but there's one scene that's a little more explicit um at the low low shoulder Low elbow? Low shoulder. Low shoulder. Low elbow. At the low shoulder concert, which ends a disaster, um, kind of goofing on the Great White uh, tragedy when their pyro set the club on fire, the club burns down during Low Shoulder's uh, performance. But um, Needy is inching towards holding Jennifer's hand, and she's kind of looking up expectantly. And like, there's there's just as much a welcome interpretation that this is pushing for kind of like a, a physical reaffirmation of their close friendship, but it also invites, um, you know, a very, it's very compatible with a queer reading as well. And I'm thinking of that scene now and Needy sort of looks up disappointedly at Jennifer, who's diverging from um, sort of that psychic bond that they tend to share and going towards a much more, more heteronormative, script in that she's staring at the singer of low shoulder and kind of sizing him up and how's she gonna get his attention later and go home with him and uh it's a scene where needy is kind of looking for jennifer and only finding jennifer's body like there's a very glassy stare on jennifer's face she's staring at the stage instead of at her friend who's trying to hold her hand um and it kind of hints at the much more spiritual disconnect that's going to grow very quickly between the two of them as Jennifer's body is like much more literally disinhabited and becomes inhabited by herself and, and inhabited by a demon. Oh, that's such a really great way to read that scene. Um, and that reaching for the hand gets played. Um, we, we know it's not a coincidence or just a little meaningless detail when there's also a later scene that kind of confirms some of their history where um Jennifer just sort of appears in Needy's room and they have this like very intense intimate sexually charged moment where they kiss um which is so interesting if we think about like I was thinking a lot about like mouths and proximity and eating and kissing 
um, both in relationship to, like, The Silence of the Lambs, where um, Hannibal's mouth becomes, like, a horrifying object. We know about how Jennifer's mouth, like, transforms when she's eating the boys. Um, and she gets to be really scary and horrifying and gross in a way that's, like, kind of cathartic as someone who... who <laughs> had to live through being a teenage girl or whatever um and seeing women's bodies treated really horribly and really sexualized um for its own sake for tip like only titillation purposes in horror films where this film is really playing with some of those expectations um and so they kiss and it's 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 a very intense scene and jennifer also remarks back on their history right so she kind of wants she wants Nadie to let her spend the night and she says well we can you always let me sleep in our in your bed when we share your bed when we have sleepovers we can play boyfriend and girlfriend like we used to so it's clear that they have this um this really deep intimacy that has a sexual component to it and maybe a love component to it and it spans through um it spans through their friendship through time making making the events in the film especially tragic. Yeah, especially towards the end uh, as well when, <clears throat> and it's kind of forecast, it's not kind of, it's forecast throughout that Jennifer's going to, once she starts physically consuming and eating these men, that uh, Needy's boyfriend, uh, what is his name? Chip. Is it Chip? I think it's Chip. I'm pretty sure it's Chip. I thought it was Chip. something like Josh. Okay, Chip works. Uh <laughs> is going to eat Chip. And, uh, and Needy's obviously distraught about this. And there's some of it feels familiar, and in, in you see other narratives about uh, young women in high school, and there's kind of the one friend uh, with, like, the one friend who's, like, yeah, like the prom queen, the, the cheerleader kind of stereotype, and then with the nerdy friend who's kind of like, you know, every boy likes you more than me. And it plays on that, which is is sort of a more familiar is more familiar territory. But by exploring also the romantic tension between Jennifer and Needy, we get this kind of dynamic where it's almost like not only like are you gonna eat Chip? It's kind of like you know if you're gonna eat one of us, I'd rather you eat me. You know, like it's kind of like I'm not even worth you eating me. And then you're going to eat Chip, who's sort of like I've been hanging out with and become fond of when I'm actually thinking about you. Like it kind of explores like a bi dynamic of uh, of both of of just kind of like uh, the ways in which Needy's feelings and orientations towards both her boyfriend and her best friend um, are both getting are very rapidly unraveling as uh Jennifer goes on her killing spree and the carnage starts. Yeah, I want to kind of pull on pull on some of those threads. Um, so, so Jennifer, before the sacrifice, has I almost had a realization. I think the realization has happened like before the film starts. But she says to Needy when they're at the show, like we have all the power, and she's describing how her own body. Um, specifically her breasts in the scene she has this this line that's so um, part of what is pleasurable about the film is you get these cheesy lines you're invited to laugh and also take the content seriously at the same time um, and one of the lines that plays with that is is she's gonna go as an underage person get 
alcoholic beverages for herself and for the leader of the band singer, the band singer, the lead <laughs> singer of the band, excuse me, I don't know what that that mess was, um, as a way to try to seduce him. So she thinks he's sexy. She wants to, um, I think she wants to sleep with him. I think that's pretty clear. Um, and she's experimenting with her own power as a young woman in ways that are, um, I, th I think we're not supposed to like not question, right? So like he's an adult and he should make better choices. She's also sleeping with uh, a young police cadet played by Chris Pratt, which I was like, I didn't remember that Chris Pratt was in this film, um, who should also be making better choices, right? Um, but they're kind of, they're, they're played as like dopey and dumb. And she's like, we have all the power. I'm going to go play Hello Titty with the bar, the bartender to, to get these drinks. And she's already using her body in that way, in a way that Needy is, is apprehensive about for sure. So that dynamic is like set up at the beginning of the film and the kind of friendship destroying piece happens when um, Jennifer becomes rather than feeling empowered. So after this really traumatic thing happens to her, which is that she's murdered, we should talk about the, um, the idea of virginity and whether what's going to happen to her is rape or murder, whether the film is thinking about both at the, at the same time, the same way that it's thinking about demonic possession and like straight up puberty, um, as, as kind of mirroring each other or standing in, in for one another. Um, is that before that traumatic thing happens, she seems to have a lot of sexual confidence that, does it like that? That puts her in dangerous positions. Sometimes we're not supposed to read it as just like rah rah go Jennifer, um, but she's kind of embodying it in a particular way. And then after this traumatic event, her insecurities and Needy actually says like, "Oh, it's because you're super insecure," um, and that's what happens. Is her insecurities lead her to need to need um, Needy, who is the least Needy character in the film, right? That's. Um, <clears throat> Um, absolutely right. Needy doesn't need Jennifer's boyfriends or doesn't need the attention that Jennifer gets from boys, but Jennifer needs Needy's boyfriends or any boy that gets, that gets close to her. And so Needy starts to feel like, um, yeah, that, that she becomes dangerous to be around and that's, that's the part that's not okay with her. Yeah. And because Needy is, uh, as we see in the opening scenes on her Anita's paperwork is like a nickname, a short form of need of Anita. Um, and we presume that's been a, uh, moniker since childhood. It seems safe to assume that Jennifer's insecurity, which is addressed at the end of the film, maybe, uh, you know, inspired her to project onto Anita, the tag of needy as a way of kind of putting on her, her friend, the, the the title that is actually more true of Jennifer than of Anita slash Needy. Yeah, I think the character the character of Needy though for me is I don't I don't disagree with that first. Um, but I think the character of Needy gets projected onto also by her mom. Mm -hmm. Right? So like her mom is we only get like one or two you were while we were watching you were like, oh is this like a a goof on when there's no parents in a like a teen horror movie. We never see any adults. Yeah. Yeah, and then we see Needy's mom and this really weird scene in their kitchen where her mom like sort of comes out and says, "Oh, I was having a nightmare." She says, "Well, it's four o'clock in the afternoon, so it was technically a daymare." And it's sort of 
um, strongly implied that her mom has trouble with alcohol and is very not present for her. And they have this kind of exchange where the mom describes essentially needy needing her or coming to needy's rescue in a moment. Like it's totally contrived. The mom is like kind of talking nonsense. Um, and it becomes really clear that needy doesn't need anyone is completely self and we see her cooking for herself right she doesn't she doesn't need chip she doesn't need the attention of what's the little goth boy's name uh it's uh oh my god i keep i keep coming up with names for him and none of them are the right yeah i don't recall it's like jeff or something nondescript yeah he but he's this kind of small town trying to differentiate himself as goth or punk or something with very 2000s, like early aughts, kind of his black spiky hair and his lip ring and his eyeliner. And he um, is also kind of lost. All of the characters in this film, maybe except for Needy, are a little bit lost and are a little bit unsure of their position in the world and are looking to each other in social cues to understand what they should do and who they should be. Um, and so he clearly has some kind of attraction to Needy or enjoys her company. It's unclear if it's, um, if it's sexual or what. And her boyfriend, Chip, gets jealous of it. And she just, like, really deals with it in the most emotionally mature way. Where she's like, yeah, we're friends. Like, that's fine. Let's go to your house and, like, have the totally consensual safe sex that we had planned to have. And have it be enjoyable and fun. Like, it's really... I don't know. That, yeah, I really I enjoy that about her. Yeah, it's interesting, too, actually, that the film goes out of its way to, to show us uh, Needy's like, very level-headed responsibility around sex in particular because there's never... Um, because like the opening scenes kind of frame her as like the nerdy friend and we quickly kind of see that she's just like... She's not really nerdy. She's just like not Jennifer. Like less outgoing, more, you know... Uh, laid back but it it also prevents any kind of like reading of the film in a way where it's uh because jennifer is is sacrificed under the impression that she's a virgin there's never any kind of uh dynamic where it's like oh it should have been needy because she actually is a virgin like we see very early on that they're both uh sexually active in high school and just have different different approaches to it, different vibes. Yeah, I think I'm gonna. I really like that. So I I am remembering that. So Needy does have a little bit of a messy relationship with Jennifer, where she, at the beginning, this is the, I guess the way that Needy comes into her own is at the beginning she is following Jennifer around a little bit. And Jennifer's telling her what to wear at the club, and I, it kind of sets it up where, like, I thought it, I knew exactly where their dynamic was going, and then very quickly I was like, oh, Needy has a boyfriend and is actually kind of popular in school and is not this, like, stereotypical geek on the arm of the cheerleader. Yeah, and she she sees what's happening, so um, the dynamic is early on her boyfriend is like, stop following her around. You have nothing in common. These aren't actually your interests, which is like a valid kind of critique of some of the ways that, that Jennifer is not the best, nicest friend and Needy is maybe a, maybe a little bit naive in the beginning of the film. And then it kind of gets flipped where Needy is like, eventually is like, oh, Jennifer's a demon. So that's bad. Like I knew something was wrong. 
I put all the pieces together. I went to the occult section of the library. I went through it five times. Chip's like, we have an occult section. She's like, yeah, it's really small, um, which is just such a funny moment. But then it becomes, it's not that she remains naive about the things that are happening. Like She pinpoints it exactly, and suddenly no one believes her. Maybe, but I mean, certainly because it's the occult that's happening by that by that point. Um, yeah, she's not a virgin, so I think you're right that it's an interesting thing. It's not like oh, you you missed the right one to take by um, being vain, right? Because she's like they're they look past needy while she like we see her playing pinball. I think it is at the bar. And overhearing the band talk about Jennifer and how excited they are to get to know her better. Yeah, it's such an interesting scene. And the question of Jennifer's virginity becomes this, in, or, or the, the question of virginity for Jennifer becomes this really interesting, um, one of the smartest things the film does. And it's like, it's kind of garrisoned into those couple of scenes is it thinks about the fetishization of young women's bodies and the fetishization of virginity, this like totally culturally constructed thing. And so Jennifer's not a virgin. Needy's not a virgin. They are in that respect, relatively normal teenagers with their own desires and appetites and varyingly healthy and unhealthy uh, sexual experiences. We should talk about the, the back and forth between like um, when Jennifer is eating and luring the little goth boy, actually, he's not a little, he's a teenager. He looks like Billy Joe Armstrong from he, Green Day and a lot does. like, uh, one of the sons on, uh, Milf Manor, if anybody <laughs> else is watching that. Oh my goodness. Yeah. This is, don't watch it. It's absolutely trash, trash, but one of the sons, it's like, oh, he watched, he modeled his aesthetic after, loosely after this kid. The and, male victim and. Jennifer's body. And Jennifer's body. Yeah. Uh, a little shoulder would never have come to the town that I grew up in. So maybe that's the difference. Um, Although they make a point of talking about that it, it is odd that they, they're stopping there. And it's later revealed that because they have satanic intent. They have satanic intent. And this feature of this waterfall that has this whirlpool at the bottom that it's so funny in the beginning where Needy's narration is like the science men threw all kinds of things down there, but they never surfaced. And it's this picture of just like men in these sci like science suits. Or hazmat whatever. looking suits yeah. throwing like little rubber like Red lacrosse balls. balls into the... <laughs> I think there's even the classic sort of punchline ending where she says something like, maybe, like, they went all the way to the center of the earth, or maybe they just washed up somewhere and they never found them. Like, some kind of dismissive, like, counter-hypothesis. Yeah, she's like, maybe they got lost in the... Yeah, but then she's or maybe it was just really deep. That's it. Just really deep. Yeah. <laughs> um, and so they've decided there's... It's kind of implied that there's maybe occult significance to the space with this geographical feature, but also it's got this really handy, really deep waterfall that stuff or um, whirlpool that stuff disappears into. They're going to throw the murder knife, the murder weapon um, down there, and so they, they won't be found out. And so they need a virgin, and the band members are like... To the, to the to the band leader, like, I don't think this girl's a virgin. And the band leader is like, trust me, I know about these girls. They, they put it all out there, but they never give it all away. So he thinks he's got Jennifer pinned as typecast. 
Um, and then Needy, and I, and I think she eventually feels really horrified by what she later learns to be, it's kind of ironically her role in the thing, is that she reinforces the idea that Jennifer is a virgin as a way of, like, essentially protecting her reputation. She doesn't want these young men to think poorly of her, right? So, like, you, yeah, she's a virgin. She wouldn't have, she wouldn't have sex, even though Needy herself has sex, doesn't think sex is bad. She's navigating this world where if it is known that someone quote unquote gives it away or someone is perceived to be, I don't think they use the word slutty, but I think the show is playing off the idea of like, not that the show or the show, the film um, supports the idea of like sluttiness, but I think it's, it's thinking about discourses of sluttiness, quote unquote, and sexual availability. If you've had sex and you dress in a particular way, you are sexually available, which is what Needy is countering when she comes and says, like, yeah, actually, she is a virgin. Yes. And that's also why it's so refreshing um, when we find out that Needy also is, you know, has like a normal, even kind of cool boyfriend and they're happy, and they have sex, and they're casual about it. It's, um, it seems to exist in a world as ridiculous as, like, a lot of the film is. It exists in a world that's much more like reality than a lot of the films from which the cliches it's playing with, um, are based in, which, I mean, I guess is the nature of satire and parody, and the film is very effective in those, uh, in those capacities yeah needy isn't allowed to live because she's a virgin her her the the status of her her virginity or lack thereof is is never comes into question let's talk about the scene that the scene when um jennifer is luring we look we took a break to eat dinner and um we looked up the name of the character who I've been calling the little goth boy, his name is Colin. Um, so when she's lured Colin to like the abandoned house in, I think it's supposed to be a new suburb that's under construction, is what? It's like in place of an abandoned house. This is in fact like a new house being built, perhaps. Yeah. So it's unclear. It's an un, an unpopulated large home. Yeah, that's a good way. That's a good way of putting it. Um, and so she's got in the upstairs of the house. It's super funny. Like, he realizes it's not, like, he kind of sees what's going on and, like, breaks in, like, he knocks the door, breaks into the house um, and climbs in through the window in a way that I'm like, is this Kimmy Gibbler? Is this, I think there's, like, a window entry in Boy Meets World. Like, it felt very, um... I don't know, there was something about it that felt like it was harkening back to, like, earlier teen TV, um, just in, like, a kind of silly, almost throwaway way, um, and that scene takes us, like, the camera moves back and forth between Jennifer seducing and murdering and eating Colin and Needy and Chip having right. a consensual sexual experience that has some, like, this is when Needy realizes she has the, like, psychic connection to Jennifer and gets, like, really freaked out by it. So it's not um, a wholly positive experience, but the things that are, like, not positive have nothing to do with the sex. 
Yes, it also is, in my opinion, the funniest scene in the film because uh, <laughs> Needy is having like essentially like an out of body experience, seeing these nightmarish visions, which Chip interprets as her really, really enjoying his uh, what appear from the exterior to be very modest uh, sexual moves. Yeah, he's at one point he's like, "Are you okay? Am I too big?" And it's like one of the funniest lines, but he's like smiling. Um, it's one of the funniest lines in the film, and it also like everything in this film is doing like double or triple duty in some cases, where it's also thinking about how even this character who is like the best possible high school boyfriend who is interested in consent and keeps his own jealousy under control and like really cares about needy like their relationship um is kind of stand like standalone in a way it's just really good uh, even he is still right these like weird like patriarchal scripts of masculinity he manages to kind of duck around most of them and he still is amused at the idea of being too big and causing her a little bit of some kind of like sexual pain um even though it's clear he doesn't want to hurt her he like still he still is kind of drawn in by that yeah yeah she's not saying stop she's just making a lot of noise <laughs> yeah yeah he's he's kind of um like, always reflected in a positive light to all the other men in the film. Like, he's not a dork like Colin. He's not a jerk like the guys in uh, in low elbow, uh, low shoulder. He's, oh. he's not a... Uh, I'll call it a show the whole time and you can call the band low, low elbow. Um, and, you know, like the, uh, some of like the other guys we see at the school are just kind of like lumbering jocks like he's sort of like he's got a personality he's got values he's funny uh you know he's a bit of a, a twerp at times but that just makes him seem you know uh harmless yeah one of the things that is highlighted it's it's really the the main eating scene i think this is something that's really common in all of the films that we I've watched so far, and this will be true if I remember correctly from Mother as well, which is that like there's really, however present cannibalism is in the minds of the audience, um, there's really like one eating scene in most in in all of the films that we have have seen so far. One scene that is about eating, and so that's this scene. Um, what did you think of of Zachary? One of the things that's a constant. Um, so the depiction of this, it's a horror movie, right? So the depiction of a sex scene between our most virginal character and her boyfriend should spell, right? The, the, the trope of she's no longer a virgin should mean that she has to die. Um, so the film is playing, is flipping that on its head. Um, it's also a depiction of, so it's this really, there's kind of some funny parts. It's awkward in places, but the really, like the scene between, needy and chip is mostly like it's consensual it's pretty normal it's pretty sweet in its own way and it's being played against this scene with jennifer and and one of the things that's like that all of the scenes with jennifer have in common um is that the young men are so uncomfortable and like they say yes or they keep kind of moving toward her but it's clear that they are kind of giving her no in every way that's a non-verbal 
cue, which to me feels like a flipping of a dynamic. Like, I feel like that's um, how the experience of sexual violence for lots of young women happened. In, 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 in the, like, you can see the hesitancy, you can see the no on the person's, uh, in the person's body language, on their face. Like, as a viewer, we know that they're like, yes, kind of, and then immediately they're not into it. Yeah, that's really interesting, because even, um, even Chip, who early on kind of, uh, you know, lets Needy know that he thinks Jennifer is sort of bad news, or at least, like, maybe not an ideal best friend for Needy, um, he's still sort of gradually throughout the film worn down by the demon Jennifer's advances, um, and it's not until the end of the film when he, uh, eventually is, I forget, like, I know he's assaulted by her and eventually dies, but is he sort of, like, seduced into letting his guard down, or does she just attack him? Yeah, so it's a really, um, it's one of the scenes that makes me, like, again, this film is cheesy. It's not taking itself super seriously. Nothing is super played super straight. Um, but I really like the romance between Needy and Chip. I think that's super clear from, like, everything I've said about it. Um, and, and one of the things that's really touching is Needy is, like, I can't go to the prom with you. Because she knows, again, that it's, like, her, she's picked up on, that it's her proximity to Chip, her investment in him, that makes Jennifer want him. And she's starting to realize that Jennifer wanting him um, she, she has learned some really explicit things about Jennifer, the demon, the demon piloting Jennifer's body, whatever we want to, whatever we want to call that, that character, um, is that it means, like, when she gets hungry and needs to eat again so that she can retain her, her beauty and her energy and so on, is that, like, it's, it's becomes, like, the men who, again, who are close to needy, who needy desires that become kind of her targets, and so, Needy is like, I can't go to prom with you because I can't be close to you. My closeness to you is what puts you in danger. Um, and then it's kind of, um, I mean, you mentioned Zach when we were watching it, just the, the presence of a prom scene also feels like it's referencing many different horror films about teenager and high school students. Um, and it's, uh, Chip decides he's going to go anyway. He's sad not to go with Needy. He's confused. He doesn't understand. Like, he, he really doesn't understand that Jennifer is, is a demon. Um, and he doesn't understand why... I, th I think it's it's this interesting thing where it's like, you've realized Jennifer's a problematic friend, and suddenly your behavior has changed. Like, he doesn't get... He's like... He doesn't get the why Needy's desire to distance herself from the whole situation is so is so great because he doesn't know it's life or death and he's walking through a field and Jennifer accosts him in the field and kind of plays with his mind about Needy um about Needy not wanting to go to prom with him and sort of seduces him based on his loneliness and his sadness yeah which um it's when I was Reading up on the film, uh, I found an interview where Diablo Cody kind of gave a short list of some of the horror films that were on her mind when she wrote this. And not surprisingly, uh, Carrie was one of them, just speaking of films that ended. Gruesome prom scenes or school dances. 
Um, and there's something to this too, where all of our attention is being drawn to the school dance as like, we're expecting it to be like those films where that's where all the mayhem and bloodshed is going to break loose. And it actually mostly happens sort of peripheral to the dance itself. Um, like Jennifer confronts Chip in a field on his way to the dance, and then the big showdown at the end takes place. I think that's supposed to be like the school swimming pool. But it seems abandoned also. It's dusty. So, yeah. And there's, it almost looks more like a greenhouse with a pool in it. Yeah. A really, it's a really, um, like a really weird, irregular space. I like it. It's like a like a haunted house type space, I guess, where you're like, what? Actually, why is this house in this field still standing in the lighting? Like, and it's still got electricity or whatever. Like, it's, yeah. yeah. Canadian listeners who have grown up watching Are You Afraid of the Dark can probably picture the infamous school swimming pool episode that is considered one of the scariest episodes. That's sort of what the, the vibe of this pool is like. You almost expect rather than uh, Jennifer to be there, some sort of zombie to emerge from the water. Yeah, and if you're an American listener um, interested in Canadian stuff at all, you should learn about the infamous pool episode. Um, Are You Afraid afraid of the the Dark? dark? Yeah, and maybe just (laughs) YTV in general and what it gave us Canadians growing up as kids in the 90s. (laughs) Yeah, I think that's an interesting... um, yeah, the drama doesn't happen at the prom. The murders happen in the weird abandoned house and in the woods. In the weird pool. In the weird All pool. these kind of like anti-green spaces. Yeah. Should we, before we uh, get too close to the end here, we should try to say something about cannibalism specifically, I think. Yeah, I was just thinking about, about the scene with Colin... Um, and the first scene where we know she's eating, like, the football player guy, um, and it's, again, clearly she's, like, lured him into the woods, and I think she says, like, your friend who died in the fire would really want us to be together, like, she does this really weird shady thing, and he's, like, grieving his friend, and he's turned on, and he's, like, I don't, like, it, like, kind of that mixed messaging where it's, like, clearly, um, a a non-consensual act, but in a really complicated way. Um, and all of these, like, forest creatures come out. Yeah. Uh, including many non-carnivorous ones, yet they all seem drawn to the scent of impending carnage. Yeah, so he's like, he, the guy is like, what's going on? And she, and it's, a, it's super funny. She's like, they're waiting. <laughs> I mean, since we're scholars here, I know we're name-dropping and referencing a lot, but, uh, Fans of Lars von Trier's Antichrist might, uh, if you watch this, that's probably the last film you're expecting to see evoked, but in terms of scary animals in the woods doing things you wouldn't want animals in the woods to ever do, this film has a pretty, like, hilarious yet haunting image of a deer scavenging on the corpse of the quarterback. Yeah, the deer eating the corpse is such an interesting, like, it's this really chilling, upsetting image. Um, but it also speaks to, I guess, I guess it really, like, symbolically operates as a, like, clue to, like, things are, things are gonna get topsy-turvy. We're gonna, we're gonna change the natural order. Quotes, quotes around that. Appearances can be deceiving, yeah. Yeah. 
um, there's something really pleasurable in getting to see, like, Jennifer's clearly the villain, and we know she has to die, and she has to die, um, because she's not a real person, right? Like, she's a demon, but she's also the way that puberty and patriarchy intersect to make both, I think, I think, it's like both being a teenage girl awful and dehumanizing and struggling and also that makes teenage girls kind of awful to each other um and to themselves too right um and at the same time part of what is interesting about this film part of what I think is its staying power is that it is really pleasurable to see Megan Fox like get the big pointy teeth and her mouth opens up in this really like non-human way and it's gory and it's scary and it's it's like powerful and and the show is the show the film oh my goodness apologies let's try that again um it's an image of like power but it's also scary power like there's no the film doesn't give us room to like question if this is itself empowerment even though it's like a power like a power it's a powerful villainy i guess um yeah i mean i i think while she's clearly the villain in the sense that she's killing innocent people. We still like Jennifer. Like we kind of root for her. Um, even more so than we did with Hannibal Lecter, who we discussed in the Silence of the Lambs episode, like the ambivalency the film has in Silence of the Lambs, where in that case, I don't think they're really being honest with themselves and with the audience. And they want us to root for Hannibal, but they don't want to owe up to it. Um, whereas in this film, Jennifer's victims are often so vacuous or so goofy, like Colin and like the football player. Um, we don't really necessarily feel a lot of empathy for them. And then it pays off, I think, tremendously in the final scene, it which takes us like, because the film is being narrated, narrated by uh, Needy, who's now institutionalized after being... Uh, arrested for what seemed to be Jennifer's murder, but is in actuality we know was the murder of the demon. Uh, by getting bit by Jennifer, she manages Needy manages to take on some of the demon's power, and she escapes from the institution and is ready to go beat the hell out of uh, Low Shoulder and maybe eat him. So we see she she finds the murder weapon and right she the, finds the, the knife. rubber balls both have like washed up just like in a ditch on the side of a road. Yeah, so she's walking and she kills them with their own their own murder weapon, which feels symbolic and also is 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 like you root for her. Yeah, like any ambiguity that we feel about rooting for Jennifer in those violent scenes. Um, it pays off in the end because needy we we really have a lot of empathy for and and we like her a lot in in a way that feels more holistic than the way we are invited to kind of like Jennifer too and so seeing her take on some of Jennifer's demons power and get revenge on low shoulder is is yeah quite cathartic at the end yeah the scene where she's actually eating Colin is so gory but somehow like I don't like, gore, 
Like, some people really like gore, and I don't, I, I, I have to close my eyes during some of the goriest scenes, like, in Bones and All, there are, like, two scenes that I have not been able to kind of fully watch, um, because I just, I, I just can't, and, and none of the scenes in this film are gory in the same way, um, the scene where she eats Colin, she's, like, there's a, she's, like, squatting on his is she behind his body or sitting on him? I think she's squatting down at like at his side essentially yeah drinking out of his entrails yeah his chest is ripped open and she's like literally taking her hands and like scooping up his blood and just like drinking it and it's super gross but it's not hard to watch the way some other gore is we're certainly invited in to watch it in a different way um not to necessarily be squicked out in the same way i think yeah like the squickiest part of that scene i think is the sound effect of the slurping like if it was soup we'd still be like ah yeah but even um when we get to bones and all so in bones one of the things that makes these films comparable is that eating and sex are bound up together I'd, when we get to bones and all we'll talk about if we think anybody has sex or if they only kiss or if, or if kissing stands in for like eating and kissing or the the stand in for for sex and eating as we see it in jennifer's body um but like the sound effects in the eating scenes in that film i also find really like really effective really yeah excellent, striking like, yeah but super gross and this slurping i was like it's gross but like not on not on the level where I'm, like, super... Like, it, it, it's funny. It feels funny. Yeah. Um, a few quick things I want to just fire off there is that this is definitely, barring mother shocking me, this is the clearly, I think, the, the <laughs> kindred spirit to Bones and All from our first six films, uh, especially in the way when Jennifer and Needy are kissing... Uh, when we had seen Bones and All, I remarked that the kissing in that film and the way it simulates eating, I had never seen that in a film before, but it's actually, there's a precedent for it, at least in Jennifer's body, um, where we see like a very visceral form of kissing that we probably wouldn't even think about it necessarily in, in like a cannibalistic sense, except in the context of these films that have already explicitly introduced cannibalism as an aspect of the story. And it, and it also sets up the great line that's also funny at, at the when so needy takes up some of takes on some of Jennifer's demonic power because she gets bit by Jennifer but manages to live um and needy like calls her out and says like I thought you only ate boys and Jennifer says I go both ways <laughs> um which is you don't know that the kissing scene and the kissing scene is not only a setup for that line either. Um, but it speaks to some of maybe when Needy says, I thought you only ate boys. Maybe what she means is I thought you only date boys. Yeah, I, I think so too. I think that's totally, uh, up for grabs in that scene. And, and again, I kind of mentioned it in passing earlier, but I think there is a way of interpreting a lot of, um, needy's exasperation with jennifer by the end of the movie not just because she's mortified that jennifer's gonna eat chip who she's very fond of but there's a sense of like 
almost like a uh, a feeling of rejection that Needy herself isn't selected as a victim. She's like essentially Jennifer uh, forces her into like a position of being like a conspirator almost or like a witness to all the, the murder and eating. Yeah, I think that's a good way of putting it. Thank you. Um, let's wrap up with, so everything in this film is doing double duty. It is not just a film about a satanic sacrifice that goes wrong that produces a cannibalistic demon, but it's a film where all of those things stand in for elements of, like, structures of power and, as we've said numerous times, puberty and patriarchy. And, like, the opening line of the film, I think, is is hell is a teenage girl. Like, it's not a secret. It's very much on the face of the film. Um, so let's, let's maybe close off by, like, what, what is it that she's eating? Like, she's eating boys, but what is she feeding on? She's feeding on, I think, their, for lack of a more precise term, like, their privilege, their ability to go freely and not be constricted by the, the exterior pressures that Jennifer feels. I mean, like, as much as the film at the beginning, we kind of see Jennifer through Needy's eyes, and she's, you know, her outfits are always extremely put together and particular, and her way of speaking, like, every line is a zinger. Like, she's very disciplined in her presentation of herself. But that seems, and we know from real life, you know, whether from firsthand experience or knowing people like that, like, that's exhausting. Like, that is someone who feels a tremendous amount of pressure on themselves to present themselves that way. So I think consuming these men who are much less self-aware and much more like, you know, laissez-faire about their comings and goings in the world, there's a sense that it's not just their flesh she's eating, but some of that power that they're given in society. Yeah, I think... um... I think I see it a little bit differently, but I think I think our readings of that can really fit nicely together. Um, I think she's eating their gaze. Like I think she's eating the attention that they give to her, which comes from like being in power, like where you're coming from a position of power that their gaze lends her power, right? It gives her something. Um, it's, but it's cheap power. It doesn't let her move socially. So she doesn't get their, their, I think maybe we're, maybe they don't just fit together. Maybe we're, we're just building on the same idea. She doesn't get to move freely. Um, she doesn't get out of the cycle of needing to be looked at. Right. Yeah. Well, there's, I forgot about that. Towards the end, she's in school and Needy tells her like she looks sick or something like that or doesn't look well. And She's not, uh, I think she's got like her hair in a ponytail or something like she, she's a little more casual than we are used to seeing her. And that would kind of speak to, yeah, these men just being like junk food or empty calories. Then they're not sustaining her. Um, but I love the idea that her, she's consuming their gaze, especially since it feels like retribution for the, the whole reason she's in this position in the first place is because of the gaze of the men from low shoulder and picking her out of the crowd and seeing her as the, the victim of their sacrifice. Absolutely. And I think it, some of the, the confusion is all of her victims are amidst the complex. I want it. I don't want it. I want it. I don't want it. 
body language, which again is, is I think, um, I think we read it as non like they're not consenting to be eaten, which stands in for sex, right? Even if they at one time liked the idea, um, in, for, for all of the complex and stupid ways, reasons that they, they like the idea of being uh, sexually intimate with, with Jennifer. Um, I think that that confusion maybe speaks to what Laura Mulvey is talking about in like the 1970s seminal essay on like the male gaze and the masculine gaze in cinema, which is like it reflects all of this power. It reflects the unconscious of the systems in place of phallocentrism is the language that Mulvey uses. We could simplify it. We can say it reflects the unconscious way that patriarchy looks and sees the world um, in the way the camera moves and looks in the way the film is edited in the way that the viewer is invited in to look without having to be like consciously constructed by a man himself right that the camera unconsciously takes on that that work and so some of the confusion of of the boys that she is eating may come from both enacting the gaze, being told to enact the gaze, being invited, right? Even her, that cycle of, of the way that she dresses and even the dumb throwaway line about Hello Titty is an invitation to look at Jennifer's body um, without a sense of what that actually means or does or, um, yeah. That makes yeah, sense. absolutely. Um, yeah, on a very meta level, it's a film where the men have been the men in the film have had their power displaced because in outside of the film, like in the, you know, benign reality, this film has freed itself from the male gaze through yeah. the work of the director and writer and cast and all the different artistic decisions that went into the film. I love that language of having their power displaced. And I think it speaks to the way that the unconscious as reflected in something like the gaze operates, which is like, maybe that's why they're not scared, but they're confused. Yes. Lost. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. This is a really um, fun film. It is, I think I said this at the beginning, but it bears repeating. It's I think the most fun film of, of, I mean, you haven't seen mother. Mother's a great film, but it isn't fun the way that Jennifer's body is fun. Yeah, I probably, the least fun film, but I probably had the most fun watching Alive um, <laughs> for our, all the weird reasons we discussed in that episode, which if you haven't heard, go back and listen to our episode on Alive. But this is certainly like ostensibly fun in ways that none of the other films are even uh, interested in. Yeah. yeah, it's playful. It's playful. It's, it's a hoot, as some would say. <laughs> I found it to be a hoot. And yeah, actually, you know what? The violence in it, if you want to pick a reference point, think of the violence in uh, Monty Python and the Holy Grail when the guy's getting his arms and legs cut off and you kind of squinch at it, but it's also like, it's clearly on some level being played for laughs. Yeah, that's a good, a good comparison. Um, yeah, join us next week for our discussion of Darren Aronofsky's Mother, which has one brief scene of cannibalism with a really big theological implication in it. Yes. And, uh, 
we will talk to you then. Have a good Wednesday night or whatever night it is when you're listening to this. Oh my goodness, you were, where's your zinger? You always have a zinger. Chef's kiss. <laughs> I don't know.